On the morning of May 31st, 2014, three adolescent girls, having spent the previous night at a sleepover birthday party, walked to a nearby park to play hide-and-seek. Morgan Geyser, Anissa Wire, and Peyton Leitner, whose friends referred to her as Bella, had spent the previous night playing games, eating cake, and drinking soda pop in celebration of Morgan's birthday. Six months earlier, Anissa and Morgan, who had been best friends for about a year, became obsessed with a dark character from internet folklore on the website Creepypasta. The character, named Slenderman, was the creation of a 29-year-old named Eric Knudsen for a contest hosted by the website Something Awful to Photoshop specters and ghosts into photographs. From that point on, the folk myth of Slenderman was born, an abnormally tall and lanky figure wearing a dark suit whose face was washed out and who lived in the woods, often stalking children. Anissa and Morgan became fascinated with Slenderman and the mythology that had sprung up around him, including the idea that by doing Slenderman's bidding, children could become his, quote, proxies, or servants of his, who would then live with him in a mansion located deep in the Wisconsin forest. As their obsession grew, Morgan and Anissa began to consider ways to become proxies of Slenderman. They eventually settled on murdering one of their friends, Bella, by stabbing her to death. Morgan and Anissa's first plan was to carry out the attack on the evening of May 30th by taping Bella's mouth shut, stabbing her in the neck, and fleeing. This plan was abandoned, however, when Morgan decided that she wanted to give Bella one more day to live. The next morning, a second plan, this time to attack Bella in an outdoor bathroom at a local park where her blood could run into a drain on the floor, was also abandoned. Morgan, who had stolen a steak knife from her parents' kitchen that morning, showed it to Anissa as the three girls walked to the park the morning after the sleepover. After choosing not to attack Bella in the bathroom, Morgan and Anissa decided to lure Bella into the nearby woods to play hide-and-seek. When they got Bella into the woods, they attacked her. As they held Bella down on the ground, Morgan and Anissa briefly argued about who should be the one to stab her. Anissa was originally planned to be the main attacker, chosen because she, quote, knew all the weak spots on Bella's body and would aim for them during the attack. Anissa, however, was unable to work up the nerve to stab Bella, but instead opted to hold Bella down while Morgan took up the knife. Morgan also originally struggled to stab Bella and hesitated. She told Anissa that she would stab Bella if Anissa wanted her to. Anissa started to walk away, then quickly turned and told Morgan to, quote, go ballistic. By the time the attack was done, Morgan had stabbed Bella 19 times with the 5-inch steak knife, cutting into various places on her body, including her arms, legs, and torso. One stab wound missed Bella's heart by less than a millimeter, while another cut into her liver and pancreas. After the attack, Morgan and Anissa told Bella that they would get her help, but instead left her in the woods to die. Bella, now critically wounded, managed to crawl out of the woods and onto a nearby road where she was discovered by a passing cyclist. As a narrative of the story started to form, the police were able to identify Morgan Geyser and Anissa Wire as suspects and quickly located them walking along Interstate 94 on their way to Nicolette National Forest where they believed Slender Mansion existed. One of them was found with a small bag that contained the knife used in the attack. Both Morgan and Anissa were subsequently tried as adults and attempted to use their allegiance to Slenderman as the reason they had tried to kill their friend. Both girls claimed that the other was the ringleader, stating that they were both afraid that Slender Men would kill their families if they did not carry out the attack. Bella spent seven days in the hospital recovering from her injuries. She was able to return to school in September. 
When interviewed about the attacks, Bella painted a horrifying picture of her two friends as they worked themselves up to stab her in the forest. In one of the chilling details of the attack, Bella recounted something Morgan had said right before she stabbed her. After Anissa had told her to go ballistic, Morgan turned to Bella, leaned in, and whispered, I'm sorry. This episode is about the Slender Man stabbing. Welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. So, David, we're covering a very disturbing and interesting case on this episode. I agree. And this was actually a topic that was recommended by several of our listeners. Yeah, it's pretty interesting how this has this story has sort of taken on a life of its own. It really has, and there's been uh, quite a few documentaries and it's been kind of dramatized in a few different films and you and I had actually watched a documentary about this case a couple of years ago and I remember even at the time there were a lot of different aspects of the case that we thought were very interesting. So I wanted to talk about the legal aspects of this case. Big surprise, I know. Yeah, of course. And the first thing that I wanted to mention briefly is that Wire and Geyser were tried as adults in Wisconsin. That was pretty interesting in itself, I think, because up until that, I don't think I've ever heard of somebody that young being tried as an adult like that. I mean, that. 12 is very young. I mean, most most times a 12-year-old would be tried in the juvenile courts. But in Wisconsin, the way that the law is written, juveniles who are charged with attempted murder are automatically tried in adult court. Wow. So the girls' defense lawyers argued several times that their cases should be moved to the juvenile courts, but the judge disagreed, mainly because of the brutality and the severity of this offense. Right. So the other thing that I wanted to discuss is the insanity defense in this country. I think that many people are familiar with this defense, as we've all heard about it being used in some pretty high-profile cases. So one that I tend to think about, you know, being from Colorado and having lived in Aurora for many years is the Aurora theater shooter, James Holmes. Right. And he unsuccessfully pled insanity. Do you remember that trial? I do. Absolutely. I think that we were very into that trial. That was before you and I had really met. But I remember distinctly when that happened. I remember going to work that day and hearing about it. Yeah. And I, I remember during the trial, they had kind of an ongoing transcript of what was going on during the court hearings. And I remember reading through every little aspect of that case because it was just very interesting to me. 
Um, And in James Holmes' case, he was unsuccessful, as I said, with the insanity defense. But because it's used in some of these high-profile cases, you know, I've heard a lot of people say that they think this plea is really like overused well i think that it's overused in pop culture for sure because i think that most people don't really understand what it means well in all actuality less than one percent of criminal cases involve an insanity plea and of the cases where the plea is entered only about one quarter of those are successful so when we're thinking about people who are actually found not guilty by reason of insanity it's very very few cases well So different states and the federal system use different standards for determining insanity. And Wisconsin uses the Model Penal Code standard, which states the defendant had to be unable to act within the legal constraints or he or she failed to understand the criminality of their acts due to a mental defect. In Wisconsin, the burden of proof is on the defendant, meaning that once the defendant enters this plea, It's up to him or her to prove he or she was insane at the time of the offense. In most states that have the insanity plea and in the federal system, the burden of proof is on the defendant. But interestingly enough, Colorado is one of only a few states that puts the burden on the government. So in that case, once a defendant raises this defense, it becomes up to the government to prove the person was actually sane. So that, that's a significant difference between the state of Wisconsin and the state of Colorado. It really is. So, you know, in most states and in the federal system, if a defendant raises the issue of insanity, the assumption is still that the person was sane and they then have to prove that they were actually insane. Right. In Colorado, it's the opposite. So once the defendant raises this defense, the assumption is that the person was insane and the government has to prove otherwise. I think that raises a really interesting point in terms of just how much of a difference there are between states. And you all had also made the statement while we were researching this that the Wisconsin law is still significantly different from federal law. Yeah, so there are that actually is a good segue into the, like the next piece that I wanted to talk about. So all states that have the insanity defense and the federal system use what is called the cognitive prong, or it's also sometimes called the right-wrong test because it considers whether the person had the ability to know right from wrong. 16 states also include the volitional prong, which considers if because of a mental disease or defect, the person had the inability to not engage in the behavior even if they knew it was wrong. So in Wisconsin, they have both prongs. They have the cognitive prong and the volitional prong. In the federal system, we only have that cognitive prong. That volitional prong, it's also called the irresistible impulse test. We don't have that in the federal system. So it really can vary from state to state. And in fact, four states don't have an insanity defense at all. Wow. Yeah. Well, that is, that's very interesting. It is interesting. So in Idaho, Utah, Montana, and Kansas, they have no insanity plea. Okay. In Idaho, Utah, and Montana... They offer the guilty but mentally ill plea, but this plea doesn't really mean anything because a person is still convicted of a crime, they're still sent to prison, and they're not guaranteed mental health treatment. Kansas offers no mental health defense other than what's called a mens rea defense. 
Mens rea means guilty mind, and this is one of the two components that has to be present for there to be a crime. The other one is the actus reus, or the guilty act. Anyway, in Kansas, in order for someone to qualify for this defense, he or she would have to have been so impaired at the time of the offense that he or she did not even know they were engaging in the act itself. So they wouldn't even be aware of what their behavior is. And you can imagine that would be extremely rare for somebody to be that impaired. And somebody who was that impaired, it would be even rarer for them to be committing a crime. Yeah, right. Because most people who are genuinely mentally ill are more likely to be victims of crime rather than perpetrators of crime. Yes, far more likely. Yeah. Recently, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case Kaler v. Kansas, where they're deciding whether or not it is constitutional for states to punish defendants who were unable to appreciate the wrongfulness of their actions at the time of the offense. Or in other words, they're determining if it is constitutional for states to abolish the insanity defense. Up until now, the states have been able to decide if they will have an insanity defense and what standard they will use. So the oral arguments were made on October 7th of 2019. Mm -hmm. So the court has not yet released a decision, but it's something that us forensic psychologists are really looking forward to. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, and it's it's very interesting. The oral arguments, there are links. um, There are, are websites where you can hear them if you're interested in listening to the oral arguments. It's kind of interesting to hear the attorneys argue in the Supreme Court, present their cases. Um, And we'll actually have a link to be able to listen to those on our website. So in Wisconsin, the technical name for the insanity defense is not guilty due to reason of mental disease or defect. And they use what's called a bifurcated trial. So the first portion is to determine if the person committed the act. If the person is determined to be not guilty, the process ends and the person's released. That makes sense. Yeah, just as they would be at a trial where there was no insanity defense raised. However, if the person is determined to have committed the act, the second part of the trial commences where the judge or jury determines if the person was not guilty because they had a mental illness or some cognitive problem that interfered with their ability to understand their behavior was wrong or with their ability to control their behavior. If it's a jury deciding these issues, the first issue must be decided unanimously. But the insanity decision in that second part only has to be agreed upon by five-sixths of the jurors, which I thought was kind of interesting. Hmm. Although all defendants have the right to a jury trial, a person can decide to waive this right for a court trial instead, where the judge makes these decisions. So when we're talking about insanity, it's important to point out that this is a legal concept not a mental health definition. Psychologists and psychiatrists help educate the court regarding a defendant's mental health, but there's no particular diagnosis called insanity, nor is there any disorder that if a person has it, he or she would automatically be found insane. Uh. Yeah, so there are some people with mental illnesses who may commit a crime, and they still may not meet the insanity standard if their mental illness did not interfere with their ability to know right from wrong or control their behavior at the time. Generally, the mental disease or defect needs to be severe, and some statutes even state that specifically. Usually, those deemed not guilty by reason of insanity have a psychotic disorder, a severe mood disorder such as mania, or significant intellectual disabilities or cognitive disorders. 
Voluntary intoxication doesn't count. Right. So it can't be, well, I got drunk and didn't know what I was doing. Right. That doesn't fly. And behaviors related to personality disorders, especially like antisocial personality disorder, also do not qualify for an insanity defense. Right. So in Wisconsin, if a defendant is found not guilty due to reason of mental disease or defect, they're automatically committed to the Department of Health Services. If it's for a felony, he or she will be committed for a specified period of time that cannot exceed the maximum prison term a person could get if convicted of the same felony. Ah, okay. That's interesting. It is interesting because that's very different from the federal system. Right. In the federal system, uh, defendants are committed, but it's for an indeterminate amount of time. It has no relation to what a potential sentence could be. Because the thought is that that commitment is for the purposes of treatment, not for punishment, as it would be if a person was convicted. Right. And that's one of the things that I think is most disappointing to some of the criminals who come in and try to play the system, who try to get over on you as a forensic psychologist. Well, you know, I'm crazy. And then they find out, but even if you are determined to be insane, you're going to be locked away for an indeterminate amount of time. Right. And so they've done research um, over the years looking at people who were committed for the purpose of not guilty of re- by reason of insanity acquittal versus people who were incarcerated for the same crimes. And on average, the people who are committed tend to spend more time confined than people who are found guilty. Wow. So, yeah, I think that that's a, a, a common misconception is that if somebody does, quote unquote, get off on insanity, they're found not guilty by reason of insanity. A lot of people think they're just released back to the community. Right. And that's not at all what happens. Right. So in this case, the Slender Man stabbing case, Morgan Geyser was actually found to be not guilty due to reason of mental disease or defect by a judge. She didn't have the jury trial. She, she opted for the court trial. And... She was ordered to spend 40 years in a mental health facility, which was the maximum term allowed for for this case, for her case. Right. So Anissa Wire pled guilty to engaging in the act. So she's saying, yes, I did this, but stated she was not responsible for her behavior because of that mental disease or defect. Her case was heard by a jury and they agreed. She was ordered to be committed to a psychiatric facility for 25 years. And in her case, she can actually petition to be released from the inpatient unit starting after three years, but she would remain in outpatient care and under the supervision of the courts until she's 37 years old. So Anissa Wire was diagnosed as having a shared delusional disorder with Morgan Geyser, who was diagnosed as being in the early stages of schizophrenia. So if you remember when we talked about delusional disorder during episode two of the Unabomber, mm-hmm. uh, delusional disorder is a very rare psychotic disorder where the person's only symptom is a fixed false belief, a delusion. Estimates are that it only occurs in about 0.03% to 0.2% of the population. So it's very rare. And a lot of mental health clinicians in the community will never see a case of delusional disorder. It's far more likely for somebody working um, actually in a correctional facility to come across somebody with this disorder because unfortunately, sometimes people have delusions that lead them to engage in illegal behavior. Right. 
So even rarer than delusional disorder is a shared psychotic disorder, shared delusional disorder, which is also called a folie a deux. This is where two people share the same delusion. And this can occur when one person already has a pre-existing psychotic illness, such as schizophrenia or mm -hmm. delusional disorder, and someone close to them starts to believe the same delusion. So in this case, several experts argued that both Geyser and Wire had a delusion that Slender Man was real and that he was a threat to their loved ones if they did not appease him by murdering their friend. The only thing that was a little perplexing to me in this case was that in the documentary you and I watched, they indicated Wire was the one who actually introduced Geyser to Slender Man. Right. And she appeared to be the one who had like initiated the plan. Mm -hmm. And that was just kind of interesting because Geyser was actually the one that had the early stages of schizophrenia, according to the experts. Right. Now, I don't know if maybe she suggested this and because Geyser was developing this mental illness, it like stuck with her and then she became fixed on it, mm -hmm. fixated on it um, or what. But the reality is that shared delusional disorder is so rare that we don't have a lot of really good research on how it develops or even the best treatment. So this case was kind of groundbreaking in that sense then. You know, I don't know of a lot of other high profile cases where the individuals had a shared psychotic or shared delusional disorder. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, I've never seen a case of shared delusional disorder in my career. Uh -huh. I have certainly seen many defendants that had delusional disorder, um, but this is just, it's a very rare thing. So that's what made this case so fascinating to you. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the fact that they were so young, um, that they were tried in an adult court was was kind of strange, right? That's not something that happens very often. Right. They both were successful in their insanity defenses. And then we have this very rare mental health disorder that's being diagnosed. So, yeah, I mean, it was just, it's very interesting to me to, to kind of think about that. I know you and I had some some disagreements about that. Now, obviously, this is way, way, way more your wheelhouse than it is mine when it comes to sort of diagnosing mental illnesses. Um, and you had made the point, well, these are what the professionals are saying. And they're, they're, they have spent a lot of time with these two girls and interviewing them and testing them and so forth. Right. I know that I got the feeling, and this is just the feeling, right? I, I have absolutely no professional experience to base this on well very little professional experience to base this on but i i got the feeling that morgan geyser was the ringleader she's the one that got the most time she's the one that got the 40 year that commitment. is true she did get the longer commitment she's also the one that did the stabbing she is the one that did the stabbing and i i wonder if though that's the reason that she got the longer commitment yeah i i, I i'm, I'm assuming so yeah i would have no doubt i just i for some reason the way the documentary portrayed her it, she struck me as a budding psychopath. That's that's the feeling I got off of her. That is some of the things, you know, from the statements from her parents and so forth. And it just seemed like they were reaching for a way to avoid having to say that. Because nobody wants to admit or nobody wants to face the idea that their kid may be a psychopath. 
Well, and I, I think that you have to be kind of careful because kids are still developing. Right. And, you know, one of the main things that her mother pointed to in the documentary that you and I watched, which I think was called Beware the Slender Man. Correct. It was an HBO documentary. Yeah. Um, she said that her daughter didn't display a lot of empathy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we've discussed in other episodes about psychopathy, that is a hallmark of psychopathy, but that's not the only time we see that particular symptom. So individuals that um, have an autism spectrum disorder can have deficits in empathy. Certainly. Children who will later go on to develop schizophrenia often have kind of odd and unusual behaviors in childhood and adolescence, and they often have social difficulties. And people with psychotic disorders their emotional expression is impaired. So one of the symptoms of schizophrenia, it's one of the negative symptoms, is either inappropriate affect, so meaning that their emotional expression doesn't match the situation, Uh or a flattened or restricted affect, meaning that maybe it is appropriate to the situation, but it's far less intense than what we would expect. And that seems to be the way she was presenting. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, there was some, she real her affect seemed um, inappropriate for the situation. She right. was very matter-of-fact during the police interrogation. There wasn't a whole lot of emotional expression. So then it's up to the experts to determine, so why, why is that happening? What mm-hmm. is causing that? And I'm sure that this was a really challenging case for the mental health professionals because, you know, you think about kids and kids engage in lot, all kinds of magical thinking. Right. And so trying to separate just that normal developmental magical thinking um, from a delusional disorder would be, I think, very difficult. Most children believe in some sort of fantasy person or creature when they're young. Right. Right. I mean, but we wouldn't say that a child is delusional for believing there are monsters under the bed or in their closet. Mm-hmm. You know, our reality testing kind of develops over time, and it's not until we get older that we start to begin to be better able to differentiate fantasy from reality. Uh-huh. You know, I just, I'm grateful that I don't have to do these types of evaluations on children because I, I just think it would be, it would be very challenging. Right. Yeah, it was fascinating. When you were explaining that to me, it gave me another dimension of which to look at this case because... Yeah, that was my initial response, um, particularly to Morgan Geyser, was that it, there was just something very cold about her. And to me, it was just sort of like, well, let's really try to figure out, let's come up with something so we don't have to call a 12-year-old girl a psychopath. Like I said, in childhood, it can be very difficult to differentiate kind of what is going on. Right. Um, and I do think that you have to look at big picture. And I, I wonder, because of the environment that you and I work in, mm-hmm. if, if that kind of plays into that maybe being the first kind of thought that, oh, this person must be a psychopath because we are around people that have, you know, engage in lots of criminal behavior, have empathy deficits, all of that. But it does sound like, I mean, we're several years out from from the offense at this point. Right. And it does sound like she legitimately has schizophrenia um, from everything that I've read. So yeah. it's very likely that what people were seeing in that interview were kind of the early signs of that disorder. So there's no question that 
it's different i think when we work exclusively with adults i think that i think you're right in the sense that working with children is a whole different world there's yeah. no question about that yeah. yeah so looking at the big picture i became fascinated with the story of slenderman and this the trajectory of this mythology and that's what I really wanted to sort of focus on rather than, you know, the legal beagle stuff that you were talking about. Well, just I, now. I think that this speaks to what you study so much. I mean, with regard to like we've, you know, we've talked about in several episodes, dark archetypes and, you know, mythology and and kind of these ideas that keep coming up in cultures. And so I really am excited to hear what y- your thoughts on Slenderman well, I mean, by now, most people are aware of the origins of Slenderman by the numerous stories about the attempted murder of Bella in Waukesha, Wisconsin, who was lured into a forest by her two friends. This particular story has brought forth a renewed interest in the story of Slenderman, who was a fictional character that was the creation of Eric Knudsen as part of a contest. Back, This was back in 2009. So Newton reported many different inspirations for the character of Slenderman, which I'll get to in a minute. But the folklore behind the development of the character of Slenderman has been a subject of some interesting scholarship, including how the meme took on a life of its own when it was created in 2009 and how Slenderman lacks an official story for people to reference. The mythology of the character changes a great deal depending on who is telling the story. You know, what it reminds me of is, you know, we didn't have Slender Man when we were growing up. That was way beyond our youth, right? But I remember growing up and hearing about the Boogeyman, and that's kind of what he reminds me of. Yeah, sure. Well, so this isn't unlike storytelling in the oral tradition, whereby it was expected that certain stories, even cherished and timeless ones, would evolve over time most likely to remain relevant to what people of the time might be going through at that point in history. I know that, you know, when I tell stories about the prison, you know, I forget certain details and to keep them entertaining, I sort of add new ones. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We all do that, right? Sure. So, you know, the stories change and sometimes I add in things strictly for entertainment purposes, (laughs) you know, to get a laugh. Yeah. Nothing too egregious, hopefully anyway, but, you know, to get a laugh. So there's a scene in the movie La Bamba, if anybody remembers the movie La Bamba about Richie Valens. Yeah, right? totally. Where they were going through numerous ways the folk song La Bamba was sung um, and deciding which version of the song that Richie Valens was actually going to sing. So another example of this is the Mexican La Herona mythology. While the basic story may be that a woman drowned her kids and then spends her time in the afterlife looking for them and crying about it, there are many different details depending on who's telling the story. The same might be said for El Chupacabra as well, the Mexican goat sucker. Yeah. Yeah. So, and there are countless other examples of this. Just last weekend, we were watching the movie Candyman from the 1990s. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You That's know, another like urban legend, right? Urban legend, right. Um, here in Colorado, Growing up, the same, almost the exact same sort of concept was used for a character named Bloody Mary. We we did that too in New Mexico. I remember hearing about Bloody Mary and we would like dare each other to say her name in the bathroom in the dark. In front of the mirror. In front of the mirror, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So there is something in the minds of all of us, I think, and especially the young, to sort of reify abstractions into a sort of quasi-reality. In the documentary about the Slender Man stabbing, entitled Beware the Slender Man, which was uh, produced by HBO, 
One of the people being interviewed, the folklorist, states that we as adults often forget what it's like to be a kid or how difficult it is. This gets back to what you were saying about differences and being conscious of the differences between the way kids think and how adults think. Right, yeah. Here he was making a reference to the challenges of growing up, including the numerous changes we are going through physically. Finding our identities, being exposed to many of the disturbing realities of the world. An author that I like, Dr. Harville Hendricks, a psychologist, uh, once described it as eros folding in on itself. So this is the harsh reality and coldness of the world as it starts to show itself. And parents slowly lose their ability to shelter and protect children from the great big world. So there is this idea of Slender Man being one of those dark entities waiting to snatch up our children like something you know could be like drugs or satanic cults or child molesters whatever the fear du jour is which is often an expression of our collective fear of the darkness as we mature from children into adults and the chaos that often comes with this transition so i wanted to talk about the symbology of the slender man which is fascinating to me in many ways i would argue this creation is representative of many of our collective fears as we move forward in the digital age for instance, the fact that Slender Man wears a black suit is very interesting to me. It conjures up an image not unlike the famous painting entitled Son of Man by René Magritte, where a businessman is faceless because his face is covered by a green apple hovering in front of him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've seen that. Classic. Painting. Right. Yeah. Um, the suit on the Slender Man could be representative of a uniquely contemporary fear. Uh, and that is of big business or faceless corporations running the world, sort of pulling the strings in the background. And while our choices are illusory, as those with power make us believe we are in control when we actually are not. This is the whole history related to the idea of corporate personhood, which getting back to the whole legal beagle stuff, is the idea that corporations have some of the same rights that uh, humans do, natural humans. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. So the implications of this idea have been pretty profound regarding the legality of big business. I won't go too far into the rabbit hole on this point, um, but to suffice to say there is a healthy fear of corporations or large business entities that are often devoid of clear moral or ethical grounding and that they're slowly taking over the world as time goes on. Some corporations with the continued growth of global business empires are even becoming more sovereign, that is, less and less tied to a particular country. The suit on Slender Man, like the representation in the painting Son of Man, seems to invoke this fear of power lurking in the shadows that can be very difficult to pin down. Yeah, and you know, as we were talking about this, it's so interesting that that's kind of your interpretation of it. It's something that would have never even occurred to me. Yeah, I, I, I tend to look for literary sort of symbols, literary um, metaphors, I think, and how they apply to or an expression of archetypal symbols. Yeah. And that's what really, the, the fact that he put on just a generic black suit, I just thought was really... And know, it is like a businessman suit. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I, I would be remiss not to point out one of the sources of inspiration that played a role in the creation of Slenderman, and that is the, that of being the men in black mythology, which I'm sure we'll get to at some point. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, we maybe get to this in another episode, but men in black are often tied to alien sightings. 
They represent a shadowy organization that is quasi-governmental that are often accused of frightening people who claim to have witnessed UFOs. Again, the idea is we have a power lurking in the shadows, behind the scenes, represented in the very plain imagery of an expressionless and unremarkable man in a generic black suit. Hmm. And there's something very creepy about it. Yeah, that. it is. Yeah. So the imagery of the business suit plays nicely with the fact that Slender Man has no face or is lack, lacking a face. Again, as in the painting by René Magritte, the imagery here seems to represent, again, the facelessness of modern big business, um, the almost psychopathic and relentless drive for power and capital, and our helplessness as we watch corporate machines take over all of our planetary resources. The capitalist system, we, we kind of have to face this, is one whereby we turn nature into commodity and commodity into capital. We have to ask ourselves, where do we as living, breathing, feeling human beings fit into this system of commodity and capital? Slender Man then becomes a very powerful symbol of the dark recesses of our unconscious fears that our future, represented by the children that he stalks as part of the mythology, are being taken away, sometimes forcibly, but also sometimes by some sort of enticement, as with the girls involved in the Slender Man stabbing. Do the Slender Man's bidding, the girls thought, and they too would be rewarded by being welcomed into a life of material riches and leisure. In this case, by living with Slender Man in a mansion, they believed he occupied deep in a state park some four hours away from where the crime took place. Another interesting symbol that usually comes with Slender Man is the idea of his tentacles that protrude from his back, often catching his prey as they fight or try to escape his grasp. Again, we could have the reach of these large, shadowy, multinational corporations invading, it seems, every aspect of our lives. A part of us is tempted by the promise of material wealth, comfort, and ignorance, while another part of us is acutely aware of the destruction big business has wrecked on the planet, our health, the poor, and the creatures we inhabit this planet with who are often turned into commodity as well. At times, we may feel there is no escape from the merciless system of exploitation and consumption. This was arguably a big part of the existential sort of angst that Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber that we talked about, mm -hmm. um, that he was trying to break free of. And what his point was, which is we need a complete overhaul of this destructive and amoral system. Kaczynski was obviously more focused on technology, but technology can't be separated from corporate consumerist culture and the spirit of imperialism. So anybody remember the way Microsoft was vilified by other companies as they moved toward building a monopoly in the late 90s? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, sure, of course, we all did. Um, it seemed at the time, however, there was no getting away from Microsoft. Their tentacles reached out to basically everyone who owned a computer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what I guess I would say is that Slender Man seems to be a perfect representation of many of our dark, unconscious fears in the contemporary age. There is no doubt in my mind that Newton tapped into a powerful, dark, archetypal symbol when he created this character. In Jungian psychology, we often have instances whereby we experience tapping into the collective unconscious or these archetypes that are running themes in our lives. Kids seem to do this remarkably well, as in the case of them dreaming of mushroom clouds without the knowledge of what an atomic bomb is. They were receiving symbolic imagery through their dreams of the collective unconscious. That just like blows my mind. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's it really fascinating. does. And, and you think about these dark archetypes. 
we see them in all cultures. Now, they, the specifics of it might be different from culture to culture, but the idea is the same. Right. And so that's coming from the collective unconscious, right? Yeah. It's, it's sort of like this global information that is floating around out there that we tap into. Fascinating. Yeah. This case, to me, seems to represent a perfect storm of variables. Two girls who formed a dyad of sorts and who seem to be especially sensitive to the images they were encountering from the collective unconscious and online. These images, which are understood and assimilated in the lives of most rational adults, take on a much more literal meaning in the lives of children who are not yet able to understand things like symbology or metaphor. Add to this what seemed like the insecure nature of wire and the budding psychotic traits of geyser and you have a very dangerous combination normally parents would add reassurance and context to the irrational fears of children dealing with something like slender man in their dreams it seems that this is becoming more and more difficult to do however as children are becoming more computer literate at younger and younger ages this point was sort of raised in the documentary we watched, Beware the Slender Man, as Wire's father brings up the fact that his daughter spent a huge amount of time escaping into her iPad, and his concern over the fact that classrooms at her school were integrating iPads into their daily curriculum. I truly feel that parents these days are fighting an increasingly difficult battle of instilling their values into their children as these kids are relentlessly bombarded with corporate marketing strategies that create need and seek to keep kids continually insecure, create complexes that they will deal with for the rest of their lives by buying into a consumerist culture that promises temporary relief before the cycle starts all over again. Well, and I, as part of the documentary, they showed some of the videos that Wire was looking at on YouTube. And even as an adult, some of this stuff was so like shocking and disgusting and... It's like, I wasn't ready to see it at my ripe old age, right. and I can't imagine a child at that age being able to make sense of those things. Yeah. And then to be bombarded, as you said, all the time, because that is what's pushed. Everybody has to have a device, and they have to have their device with them all the time, mm -hmm. and everybody is staring at their screens, that it must be very difficult for parents to kind of reinforce that this is reality, and this is fantasy, and these two things are different. Yeah. And, you know, I think that Slender Man seems to personify these struggles and these fears. And I think that these struggles and these fears are specific to the time that we live in, the contemporary digital age. And I think that that's really when uh, this character was created. It really resonated as a dark archetype in a lot of people. And I think that's why the mythology blew up the way it did. And it persists. It, yeah. it still persists. Today. So I just wanted to take a, a moment before we wrap up the the episode um, and just talk about the um, the interview that Peyton Leitner recently provided to the media. This was really the first time that she has spoken to the media about the incident and her injuries. And she really supported the girls being tried as adults. And she said she was not surprised when she learned why Morgan had stabbed her because she said that Morgan believed in Slenderman so completely that there wasn't anything that she wouldn't have done for him. Peyton also said that she's really turned this terrible experience into something positive as she feels like she now has a plan moving forward in her life. And it's because of, of the trials that she went through. 
And it sounds like she's doing really well. Although, of course, you know, this is something that that people live with for the rest of their lives. But I just wanted to take a moment and just talk about that aspect of it and just acknowledge Peyton Leitner and what all that she went through. Yeah, I think that it it's really speaks to the resilience of children. Absolutely. Yeah, that she was able to bounce back the way she did from this because, I mean, that's an incredibly traumatic experience. And, and to have two of your friends. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't even imagine. I yeah, can't or people imagine. that you thought were your friends at any rate. So now we want to hear from you. Do you think justice was served in this case? Or do you believe the courts should have done things differently? What do you think about urban legends such as Slenderman and these dark archetypes? You can leave us your comments on the discussion page of our website, psychologyafterdark.com. You can also send us an email on our webpage or send us a message on Facebook. Thank you to everyone who's reached out to us with your feedback and suggestions. We absolutely love hearing from you guys and emailing back and forth. It's really been very cool. And thank you all for your continued support. And as always, if you're enjoying our podcast, please give us a five-star rating and let your friends know. And David and I will be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Gemendo.